When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 134th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus is someone who's actually worked extensively in the theatre. And I didn't actually know that about this person. So what happens, as with all the guests on this show, is... I know people's work or I know them from Twitter and I see someone whose critical voice or, you know, their their sort of perspective on the world and I think I want that person to be on this show. And that is very much that for this new guest. Um, They're a film uh, reviewer for, apart from working in the theatre, they're a film reviewer for a site called maketheswitch.com. Um, .au. So if you're in Oz, you're, you're most definitely familiar with them. But this particular... Uh, this particular guest on this show um, very recently wrote uh, a review of Alex Garland's Annihilation that has finally come to Blu-ray and if you're in Australia you're devastated uh, because you never got to see it at the theatre um, and and I, I just want to read you a line from this review by my guest before I fully introduce you to them because it, it's something that I when I read it it was the clincher for me getting him on this show He says, talking of Annihilation, this film is as bad a complete a cinematic experience as you could possibly want with breathtaking cinematography and jaw-dropping design, astounding sound design, and a hypnotically mysterious score, all directed with startling clarity of vision. It's a film that wants to engulf you, swallow you whole, and spit you out the other end. That is exactly how I feel about Heat. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce you to one of uh, a new guest and a new friend, Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Lamon, welcome to One Heat Minute. Thank That is one of the most flattering introductions I've ever been given in my life. So I'm like, glad no one can see me because I'm bright red. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's a lovely way to be introduced. And thank you for having me. You're welcome. And <clears throat> welcome to... I've thrown you in it, Dan. I'm sorry. Because this is a really... You know, this minute of the film was already going to be a, a significant minute, was... I mean it with a relationship in this movie that is, you know, very divisive. And Dan had not actually seen Heat until I asked him to do this show, which is all the more awesome to get him for this particular minute. So what we're going to do before we dive into Dan, uh, Dan seeing Heat and being convinced to do it and so quickly turning around to go and buy Heat and watch it and all that stuff... We're going to quickly dive in to the 134th minute. If you don't know what minute it is, we've just seen Nate say one of the most awesome lines ever in the history of cinema. It's a free country, brother. And then he's uh, asked Neil to call him back at 9 p.m. to make sure that the door is still open, the window is still good, the out is still safe. And here we are, we arrive with Neil, killing time on the outskirts of L.A. with Edie, and making one final plea for her to come away with him, if we ever would believe that Neil Macaulay would actually escape. <laughs> um, that, is a great, uh, that is a great what if. So Dan and I are going to watch the minute together now. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. 
I know life is short. Whatever time you get is luck. You want to walk? You walk right now. Or on your own. On your own, you choose to come with me. just before he really kicks it in <laughs> just before he really kicks it in oh that's one hell of a finish oh uh, this is the play i actually there's sometimes it's both devastating but your reaction is perfect because it's like oh god damn it it's because i've got because I, I have the fox release the the timing for the minute covers that exact conversation. Yes. Almost like with like a second to spare. Yes. And I knew as I was watching, I was like, I bet this is, I bet this isn't right. No. Nope. I bet I'm going to miss out on the kicker at the end. That's fine. There's enough there to talk about to begin with. I'm sorry. The the next guest on the show, uh, Mel, renowned film critic for the age, Jake Wilson, is going to have to mm. pick up exactly where we're about, we're leaving off right now. So, Dan, this is the first time you've seen this movie. What, yes. Let, let's talk before we dive into... Neil McCauley's reaction here and sort of get deep on this analysis. You you said one thing in in a little exchange that we were having over messages. You know, you were kind of taken with the emotional complexity. It kind of hit you, you know, kind of hit you unexpectedly. You just weren't expecting it from this big movie. Yeah, I mean, the thing that, and it really, it really kind of all comes, I think comes to a head in this particular minute, actually, which was when you said that this was the one that we'd be looking at, I was really excited because it kind of, it was the one of the moments where it, the film really took me by surprise, which is the idea that you have this kind of perfect mechanism of a heist thriller. Um, and we're so used to seeing that mechanism entirely about the, the, the way the narrative works. Like the A leads to B leads to C. Um, certainly in the, the post Nolan um, kind of cinematic language, but the thing that took me surpri- took me by surprise with this was the little moments where it would allow a tremendous amount of depth within the characters that you just wouldn't expect. Like the idea that, um, particularly with Neil, that there is a push and pull with him about whether or not well, what kind of life he actually does want, reflected in both the way that he talks with Edie, the way that he talks with the rest of his crew, the way that he manipulates the way that the crew interact with each other and with that interact with their partners. Um, and that by the end, you end up being, you, there is that, that um, you don't know how you're supposed to feel about either of the two men. You don't know, you don't really know whether you want Vincent to succeed or Neil to succeed. I remember distinctly when it came to the climax sitting there going, but I don't know what I want to happen right now. And that was really exciting because I usually, I have to admit, I haven't seen many Michael Mann films. I've seen Collateral and in and The Insider, but at a very young age, like I would have been in my teens when I saw The Insider. And I actually had tried to watch Heat previously, but I was still in that really lovely period post The Dark Knight where everybody, you just thought The Dark Knight was this impenetrable masterpiece. But you started <laughs> to realize that it's great, but it's very flawed. And so I started watching Heat and I was just so taken aback by the similarities between it that I just turned it off. I was like, I'm not in the mood to watch. If I want to watch this kind of movie, I want to watch The Dark Knight. Um, and so the, the, the fact that Michael Mann's, um, I think you talked about it in another episode, his coolness, um, his like tremendous, uh, the way he controls every aspect of what it is that you're experiencing, I found quite cold. Yes. Like for me, cool kind of came out as a bit cold. So the surprise for me was the degree to which Within that that perfect mech, like that perfect clockwork of the way the narrative works and the film works, that he would just dive occasionally, and so that every time you came up for air, those those mechanisms made more sense. Those mechanisms um, resonated more. Um, so yeah, and I, yeah, I, I, it was it, it took me by surprise. I was surprised at how affected I was by it and how much the characters and the relationships stuck with me to the point where, in the time since. I've more thought about the characters and the relationships than I have thought about the story, about the heists or the set pieces. Of course, they're fabulous, but yeah, it's the the way that these men interact with the people around them that really has stuck with me. I think you've you've synthesized a great message of what I've discovered in this show as well, which is there's kind of these 
And I love the way that you described it, which is that you've got the mechanism like the clockwork. And, and I think because you even talked about post-Nolan language, it reminds me of a Nolan thing, which is like you've literally got time ticking over and you're just dipping in and out of these like things that are slightly bent out of time. There, It's this weird temporality when you dive into these relationships. And this whole film, you know, people talk about the highest, people talk about the set pieces, people talk about the coffee conversation. The sinew of this entire huge mechanism is just emotional encounters it's people mm. give uh, giving meaning to the method of of the whole film so yeah which is something which is something that in the period the dark night up to you know rises period of nolan's career it was really it was i had a similar response to watching this that i had to watching die hard for the first time which was only in the past year i watched die hard for the first time it was one of those things of going ah oh, whole decades of cinema make sense now <laughs> yes. because they're all trying to do this just not as well. Like, and it was similar with watching Heat of going, oh, now all of a sudden everything post-95 in terms of those, those, those crime epics now makes a lot of sense because that's all they're trying to be is this and then kind of failing in the process. And, and Nolan's felt like Nolan's um, po- like Heat-obsessed period is so great with the clockwork and so kind of it doesn't get the emotional intensity. That's because Chris Nolan is a robot. (laughs) Well, I would, I would actually, this this is getting completely off topic, but I would actually, I've actually thought that his films have become better since he finished the dark Knight trilogy only because he kind of, you notice there's a kind of freedom to the way that he makes, he Mm. tells stories. And so finally it's like his voice is coming out as opposed to just being um, derivative. I think we can be fair though with Chris Nolan. And this is the thing with hate is, and it comes up really strong in, 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 um, actually, let me just have a look. This is the weird thing of sometimes that recording these episodes out of order, Dan, and for people listening. Immediately preceding this episode, you would have heard an episode with Cam Williams, a Melbourne-based film critic, um, um, folks who are listening. Uh, and if you haven't, you need to go back and listen because Cam coined a phrase which um, I'm going to use from now on, which I can use. He's told me, but out of order, I've had it floating around my brain and I've had to do everything I had can to stop it. He calls it heat blocking. He says that any person who ever says this movie is inspired by or is a homage to or is, you know, my version of heat, you've immediately blocked your movie from being good. Like you've undeniably, you've cut its legs out from under it. You're not going to be heat. You're going to be shit. And and, and I think um, if anyone's listened to the whole one hour examination of Den of Thieves with Katie Walsh and I, you would see that there are real pretenders out there that just try and ape it and where, where they change it. Sometimes the muscle flexes or the, or the BS is just terrible, but the credit where credit's due, this is the talent of Chris Nolan as a filmmaker is the best heat movie. That's not heat is the dark Knight. Yeah. Like to the letter, <laughs> it's to the letter. Almost at points <laughs> to the letter. To the letter, right? It's it's so terrific, and I'm a monstrous Batman fan, and uh, I'm a huge Dark Knight Rises fan. Um, for a weird, for the for the for the strongest reason that to have the handicap of no Heath Ledger and still deliver a film that is so tremendous, I think makes you a master. Um, so, but I think you've got to give credit where credit's due there, but yeah, it, I totally get you about films making sense. Like people have had an, uh, you know, die hard to your point. I would love, I wish I was with you to watch that because I still have that same oh. thing. It's like, I still get frustrated when people are like, Oh, skyscraper. It's just like die hard. I'm like, stop. It's we've done it. It's 2019. Well, Just think, stop. I, I think it comes down to the fact that it's so clear because I this is I'm just embarrassing myself continuously. Only about four days beforehand, I watched The Godfather Part Two for the first time. Oh my goodness! I promise I like film. I promise I do. <laughs> but it was a similar. It was quite fascinating to watch the jump from one to the other because it's so clear with Heat that Michael Mann doesn't have a roadmap he can follow. There's a certain degree of finding a way to tell this kind of story in this kind of way at this kind of scale with this level of ambition where there's nobody, there's no other film he can use to find his way in the same way that everyone post heat in all the films that now suddenly make more sense. You can tell they're going, Oh, but heat did this. It followed this path. Man used these techniques and he structured it in this way. And the relationships functioned in this way. Um, While with this, there is, there are moments in it where it just seems to be kind of reaching beyond its like grasp 
to try and do something it doesn't know if it's going to be able to achieve and nine out of ten times achieves beautifully um but it doesn't know it's achieving it and sometimes <laughs> i think that almost makes that's what is the difference between a good film and a great film is a film that's trying something where it doesn't know if it'll succeed but yeah, it's, it's trying anyway with an ambition you know i yeah. i I'm, I know you as a guy who frequently, you know, this is people who regularly watch films and are, you know, reporting on them and being hired to, you know, to write about them. You know, you see a plethora of films and you see all of the patterns, you know, you see all the patterns appearing over and over again. And I, an ambitious failure any day over yeah. something that is just, you know, this is the whole argument between respecting a, a Marvel movie or respecting a DC movie, where it's like a DC movie, the, the, the failures, they can be quite ambitious and admirable yeah, in their failure. I, and I in, would, yeah. and in Marvel, it's just sometimes you're like, yeah, it's okay. Like it did everything fine. And, and I, the, 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 the score of the fine Marvel movie is there. Yeah, I would, I, to be honest, I would happily talk more about Batman versus Superman any day over <laughs> any Marvel film, if only because it's so fascinating how much of a failure it is. Yeah, like, absolutely. Just, um, oh, but, you know, but particularly okay. when one of the people in the title, the, the whole story about the main, what is titular character in Henry Cavill Superman is just garbage. And it's just yeah. really like, it's just really a glorified gift wrap for the, like for a Batman, for a Batfleck movie. That's really kind of badass. Um, yeah. But, you know, you said something as well about the Godfather and with heat. And I think it's like, um, it's, you know, I, I said this in a, another podcast that's, I think, but both preceding our episode and coming up, I go, there's sometimes there's genre killers. And you talked mm. about The Godfather Part 2. And just The Godfathers was a genre killer for gangster movies. Like, people just trying to reach or riff or to to scale or to copy. They just didn't have, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's audacity and just the weird yeah. cocktail of... And those films kind of, even the second one, even though it has the confidence of the success of the first, is still trying something it doesn't know if it, that, that, that it doesn't know is going to work. It's, it make, it's, it's highly it ambitious. He's making, yeah. a, he's making a European art film. <laughs> he's making a European art film with like the biggest budget that's ever been given to any Hollywood movie, like ever. And, and he's that, mortgaging his house for it and he's doing all this crazy stuff. And it's just, it's a story about, you know, fathers and sons echoed through time. You know, the first movie is like Shakespeare. It's it's mm. you know, it's almost um it's almost like King King Learish, you know, you've got heaps of heaps of those things and that was, you know, his aspiration to make a mafia movie about you know, that's sort of unexpectedly doing all those things with um succession and all those mm. challenges and, and making it over time. And and the and the second one is so much more ambitious. Um, it's like a Tolstoy. It's oh, like it's that's trying right. To, it, or it's, it, it deals with the one thing that the first one can't deal with, which is time. time. Yes. The idea of, um, of like, as you said, like things echoing through the ages, and there's just nothing. Like, I, I think, think what, what my knowledge, I mean, I'm not that, I don't know, know that much about crime cinema between The Godfather Part Two and Heat, but it does feel like that he would represent one of the most one of the only significant moments where that form which had kind of been cemented by those films was able to shift into something new yeah still I being think, novelistic but it, into something yeah there's, there's kind of two there's kind of two films i'd call out that i would say have got the scale and 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 have that highest mechanism of that time and it's like dog day afternoon french connection are kind of the yeah. seminal moments of that and it does take you know and then you, you've kind of got Reservoir Dogs, but Reservoir Dogs is that beautiful sort of palimpsest of like everything. It's that Tarantino, like it's referencing of references of referencing. It's it's his talent for doing that. He's a bit of a genius, you know, pretty undeniably for for that. But that specific style is something. Heat is both so archetypal and so different at the same time mm. that it's like the only thing that it's self-referential to is like all of the art that has poured out of Michael Mann's brain since he yeah. started making television and film because he's just got this this, you know, authorial voice that's so cool. Dan, I want to thank you in advance because <laughs> one of the things I've wanted to say so desperately so long, um, uh, and, I've, you know, I've wanted a forum for it, and you've created an opening. I didn't realize I wanted to say it on this show, but I will now. Oh, God, what have I done? What have you, I done? <laughs> you've talked about, like, we talked about genre killers with heat and things like that, and it takes a long time for, you know, and I think Dog Day Afternoon, like I just said, was a movie that so many films just couldn't even wrap their head around how this film could exist in its organic nature. And it takes, you know, it's decades. still hard. It's still no. hard to really get your head around oh something that, that it functions at all. Cause yeah. it really shouldn't. Yeah. But you sit there going, 
but it's spectacular. Yeah, absolutely. There's no other word for it. Spectacular is the word. But, I mean, we can finally thank in this podcast Francis Ford Coppola for the Star Wars prequels, right? Because the reason we can is because George Lucas is such a fanboy of his very good friend Francis Ford Coppola that the reason that he even went back and tried to approach Anakin is because he was so desperate. He wished, he dreamed that he could make a Godfather Part 2, but he just couldn't. He couldn't do it. Oh, and, my God. And so every single time I watch The Godfather, I go, thank you, Coppola, for making George Lucas. He wanted to tell a father and son story. Like, he was desperate for it. He had a little bit of succession, and, and he, you know, he had the hero's journey in the first one, and he thought by doing the prequels, again, three ambitious failures, to make his sort of Godfather Part 2 um, a version of the Star Wars universe. He got close, certainly, as far as the ambition and the scale, mm. but he just didn't get. He didn't get what the anchor of like. He didn't yeah. get what the anchor of the present time in the Godfather does to amplify everything that's happening in the past because it's being stretched and echoing through movies at the same time. It's like it's mm. it's not only a future of the Godfather and the past of the Godfather. It's intersecting. It's like recontextualizing things that happen in that movie. So all this power and things like that he just didn't quite get it but you know that's i think i think you know there's and that's why when these movies come out these godfather part twos and these diehards and these french connections and um and uh, and dog day afternoons and then heats there's just not like they just exist and people try desperately to replicate them and you're just like stop you can't you can't do it i just can't believe i just heard somebody put the Godfather Part Two and the Star Wars prequels in the same <laughs> sentence. I mean, I've been walking around for the past year talking about how Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again is essentially the Godfather Part Two of the Mamma Mia verse. But you know, putting it with Star the Star Wars prequels, that is, I'm impressed. And I'm look, very and look, I would, and I would just at least say that the Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again one makes sense because some people like it better. And well, the, yes, the the real rule the real rule is that. Uh, and and I'm gonna steal a line from the you know Bill Simmons and they uh, built the Bill Simmons team. They did the rewatchables podcast and they were talking about the Godfather because they were doing a rewatchable episode on the Godfather Part One in in teasing a Godfather Part Two episode in the future. And they said the Godfather Part One is the more rewatchable film, but yeah. Godfather Part Two is a superior film. So you might say that for Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia One might be the more rewatchable. People go back to it because it's original, but Mamma Mia, here we go again, could be the superior film out of those two. More structurally bold, I feel. It's both. <laughs> it is also bold. both a prequel and a sequel, and uh, it is. You know, it's it. Like I remember when I watched The Godfather Part Two, I was like, "Oh my god, it's the same thing. It's two characters at the same point in their lives, going through similar experiences, except in one, it's about you know killing people, and the other one, it's about singing ABBA." <laughs> I mean, it's very similar, obviously. Both. So similar. <laughs> I'm sure so many people have turned off this episode being like, we thought you were going to talk about this minute and now you're talking about Mamma Mia. No. No, this if is... They have, if, we they, don't like if, they're, if they're still here, they've listened to way weirder digressions. <laughs> way weirder. That's what this show is a home for. It's anchoring us back to this minute. But to get, not quite to this minute, but let's get back to this movie. You watched it like a couple of days ago now, basically, right? You was yeah, not even a week, not even a week ago. And um, very luckily, as we record this, um, and you guys are going to be hearing this episode drop only five days after we record it on the 29th of March. Um, The 22nd of March, I had the distinct pleasure of seeing heat um, at the Randwick Ritz, a little um, boutique sort of art deco independent cinema in Sydney. And they do a lot of 35 mil, uh, 35 millimeter screenings. Um, very recently they've had like alien and aliens and, um, the abyss. Uh, I think they've got children of men coming up, which I was like, Ooh, oh! so good. Oh, I should. I think I need to come to Sydney. Uh, that's. I would. I would. I would die to see that on the oh, big screen yeah. again. Oh, me too. So it's like, oh my god, I haven't seen that since it came out. And but I got to see Heat in thirty-five millimeter, and uh, very recently. So I've got it fresh too, and I had such a pleasure because I knew that I was talking to Dan, who who, who had only just seen it, and I saw it with three people who had never seen the movie before, and uh, it was such a. It was such a like a hyper-tense experience. And this specific minute, 134, to come back to this minute, it kind of made a, a lot more... Uh, I don't know if it's like it made more emotional sense or it just helped me reappreciate it in the context of the film is in the minute immediately preceding this, 
Neil's face when he's talking to Nate, John Boyd's character, his face when he says, he sort of inquires about Chris and he says, like, he's gone. And, you know, before we even hit record, um, you know, we were talking about that great line, it's a free country, brother. Mm. Um, and his face there, Dan, I don't know for you, but it's like, it, it's his same level of emotion, that level of hurt, that level of like rudderlessness, you know, the, the weird fact that he's sort of controlling all of these elements around his life. And now like he literally is the loner, like he's not orchestrating this crew and their relationships well, or anything anymore. Family, his family's basically fallen apart. Yeah. He doesn't have, I mean, it's so, there's so much of a sense in, in the film of him cult, like pro- protecting and collating the people around him and that, Edie kind of sits on the outside of this because he's not sure whether or not he wants to bring her into that family. But like, no, that like that that dinner scene where he has them all together. But by this point, you know, Trey's one of dead. his crew, Trey's yeah. dead, and he's had to essentially euthanize him. Michael's yeah. dead because he didn't follow the program and uh, in the middle of the heist and didn't help them get out. Chris is in the wind. You know, Charlene, yeah. essentially his son, basically like the kind of son figure within yeah. the family. He's now lost that. Um, and he's in this moment. And so for me, when I watch this minute and we appraise it, I've got such a fresh experience of being in like this dark room, crowded dark room with a bunch of people and feeling the emotional trajectory of the preceding minute into this minute so fresh. And so I think in isolation, the, the, the both minutes that we're sort of we're tackling here um, – you know, they, they sort of feel like they might be incongruous because especially you go to a completely new scene, you go to a complete darkness, time, a passage of time has passed, but mm. it really is so immediate. Like, he's just mm. been to Nate's. Like, this is just yeah. hours later. They've just been standing on the side of the road literally killing time. And how mm. long did they stand here in sort of awe and silence and watching, and again, De Niro's just one of the most fascinating actors, just allowing emotions to pour out of his face and not say a single word mm. in this moment he's just letting it pour out and going i don't even know what i'm doing anymore and for, mm. the, for me that line is is this whole minute it is just an unbelievable he doesn't know what he's even doing anymore and this is the last person that he's kind of in this moment he's reserved to the fact that if mm. she walks she walks it's done and it's it's such a payoff i remember because I very distinctly remembered, like this was one of the moments in the film that really stuck with me. And in fact, when I was watching it, I thought that'd be a really great minute to talk about. I wonder <laughs> if we'll get to it. But it's because I also remembered the moment earlier in the film where he's talking to Chris and he says to him, you know, if you feel the heat, it you just drop. You just drop everything and you go. It doesn't matter who you're with, where you are, what you're doing, what a relationship is, you drop it. And I remember thinking there's going to be some sort of payoff with this, that you've got this philosophy in your head that you believe in so strongly. And at some point in this film, that philosophy is going to bite you in the ass and you're going to have to renege on it. And the satisfaction of this particular, both the preceding thing of him saying that doesn't work, it's all, all fallen apart, the family's crumbled, and then him ha- and then for him to admit that for him that doesn't work, was so enormously satisfying on an emotional level in the arc of this character to go, okay, this character's now in the most vulnerable place. I now don't know what he's going to do. I now don't know what he's going to do. And you're so right. What's so great about those two scenes, though, and this is what's great about those echoes. This movie has <laughs> such beautiful echoes. And if you go back and watch it again, as I'm sure that you will, and anyone who's listening is like the match cuts, the thematic echoes between two scenes, the laying the groundwork in a non-obvious way, like in in <laughs> in – either both stylistically ambitious directors, like I I talk about Edgar Wright and I don't mean to say it in a slight at all. It's just like Edgar Wright is a really great guy to lay a foundation of an early scene and pay it off for laughs. Like he's so great at doing that and it it makes it really fun and just watch Hot Fuzz. Like just, you know, just he does that like 50 times in that movie over and over again. It's such a joy. But in Heat, Michael Mann does it in a really organic and subtle way. And so in this moment, Again, it's De Niro sort of facing someone and you don't – and again, what's so good is you don't actually know what Edie's going to say and you don't know what Chris is going to say in that scene, to be honest. But the Mm. one consistency in both of these is that Chris says, for me, the sun rises and sets with her. And so you know what Chris is going to do. Like it's like you you might control him. Where Charlene? Think about that. Like Neil's still trying to influence him, still trying to do it in every scene. But right now, as you said – the family's been disbanded and he's in the most emotionally vulnerable point. And I think you need him to be unpredictable. I think that whatever stuff it does to our emotion, that turmoil that it creates inside us, mm-hmm. 
is so goddamn essential to this movie because in the run-up for the next 30 minutes that are just blistering, they're going to fly past, you know, that unpredictability keeps us completely holding our breath for, Mm. you know, 20 minutes in a row. And man really frames it very nicely to make it clear to you that this is, from a visual standpoint, an enormous turning point in the film. I mean, re-watching the minutes both before we started and watching it again, like the thing that really strikes me about it is it's ostensibly three shots, maybe four, depending on the cut from um, Neil and um, and John Voight's character as he goes to the car, then it cuts into into his house. Essentially, it's three shots. And that is the, like, it's a moment of complete stillness in a film that is usually so erratic and usually so uh, rhythmic that it just kind of stops, lets mm. the moment happen to prepare you for where it's going to go. Um, the other thing that I found really fascinating in thinking about this particular moment is and you, uh, you were talking about the sense of mirroring within the film, about how the three, maybe three, probably more so the two major relationships in the film mirror one another in terms of the way that there's always, in each of the major moments between um, Vincent... And Deborah, is that is Justine? Justine, Justine, Deborah. Yeah, um, Vincent and Justine and Neil and Edie. They both, they they kind of have sister moments within the film. Like yeah. this one to me always sits very closely as similar to the actually the companion scene to the Ralph scene. Yes. in that it's a moment, a turning point in a relationship, and the difference between them of one relationship is built entirely on truth, and that is the sense that you know, um. They, you know, Vincent's very open about exactly what kind of relationship he's offering. Um, Justine knows it. They're in conflict over the way they navigate it, but it's a relationship built entire. Even the moment with Ralph is an admission of truth. I'm cheating on you. I'm having I'm having an affair with another man, but I'm not hiding it. Everything is truthful. While this one is based entirely on a fantasy yes. of um, I'm offering you this way of life. I hardly know you. Um, I'm giving you all of these options, but I promise you something that I can't, he cannot guarantee he can offer her. So one is built on truth. One is built on fantasy. And then at the end of the film, they have their sister scenes again, which is, you know, um, Justine and Vincent in the, in the hospital and Neil and Edie in the car when he leaves her behind, that that's the way that the, that these two relationships have to resolve one another. One is, you know, has a level of honesty that's fr- frightening and brutal but the other one has a level of dishonesty, um, emotional dishonesty, that means it cannot complete itself, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And I, lo- and I think, you know, on more watchings, I love your thesis because it's so guys on point is, you know, Justine needs to disband the fantasy that they're living because Vincent's living in a fantasy. Justine's a truth teller like they Vincent thinks you know he's on the downslope of his marriage he knows that that's the truth he really does but he has to Mm. fantasize that he can still have some semblance of normalcy around his team when really his obsessive bent with his profession is driving everything so she has to drop Mm. truth bombs on him like I have to demean myself to get your attention I have to throw something at you that you can't ignoring this fantasy I can't I, I can't get you let you sweep it under the rug I need you to be present and mm. and I think what's so great here is I've literally called in you know if you if if you get to listen back to this show I called Neil and Edie I call it Fantasyland like that's they're yeah, living yeah, in Fantasyland totally. and so it's just it's uncomfortable but it's also God it's fun like if you've had a relationship at the begin like anyone who's in a relationship the first few days you meet someone they strike you it's unbelievable there's like you can get swept up and they're on their third date and he's about to take her overseas after committing a bank robbery so you get and the truth the truth moment you know where justine has to be the one to give the truth moment before and vincent actually he no to vincent's credit because they get to share it the women give them the first truth moment where edie tries to run away um, to give them that you know she she completely kills fantasyland and justine cheats on him with ralph but then Vincent, she asked him, well, do you ever think this could work? And he goes, no, you are, you know, mm. I'm what you're, you know, you, you're right. All I am is what I'm going after. So here's mm. the, let's take that out. But in, in, in this moment, it's Neil just going, nope, I'm not getting back in the car. I've got to go. Mm. 
And it's, but you get the sense, even with the moment with Vincent and Justine, that even though he says, no, this can't work, there's still a part of you goes, but I think it might because he said it, because he articulated it clearly and put his cards on the table um, in a way that, I mean, Neil puts his you cards wish, on the you table. Wish, and, you wish it is right. But I think that yeah. in that moment, it's like, The fact that he's accepted it uh, just before yeah, this, so yeah. just before this podcast hit record, Dan and I were talking, and Dan asked me, you know, what the hell are you going to do at the end of this podcast? As most people do, and what I said is, I said this podcast is my Neil McCauley, right? It's 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 at the end of it, I'm going to have to shoot it, <laughs> otherwise it'll never end. <laughs> It's such a horrific analogy. But what, but what Dan said is, firstly, he said it's horrific, and he's like, oh, that's so tragic. And I'm like, yes, that's what's tragic. Is it? He knows. He knows in that moment. That's what's devastating. And I think what's so conflicting and so wonderful about this entire sequence is that even when they accept it, and he's at his most vulnerable, and everything feels like, everything feels like it's had some closure and I know it t- does trail into the next moment. Cause in this moment we are seeing him at his lowest. The mm. thing that I love that you said is the vulnerability is so real and so true, but it makes him so much more unpredictable. Yes. And, and yeah. so we have that massive question mark that when this scene happens, it might cause discomfort or conflict or like satisfaction. But at the end of it, we don't know that what the hell is going to go on. And Vincent's been mm. telling us, oh, Neil's gone, Neil's gone, Neil's gone. And we've seen him exact revenge and we've seen him do this other stuff. But, you know, that lack of certainty is still so perfect in this minute. Mm. And there's, that's, I mean, it's, that's if you're looking at the scene purely from his perspective. And one of the things I was really, when I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, what happens if you think about it from her perspective? Because also the way that man frames her mm. is so specific. Yes. Um, in the fact that she's, I mean, she's not in focus, but she's in the foreground. Visually, she's actually larger than he is, yes. which puts him in, obviously puts him in a vulnerable position, which makes us empathize with him more. But then if you think about the sense of, of um, if you look at it from his perspective, he's being very honest with her. He's telling her how he feels and he's never told anybody in, within the context of the, of the film, but has never been this honest with them. And then you look at it from her perspective and you start to look at the structure of his argument in the sense that he goes, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, you don't know what you're doing. Your options are you can leave or on your own, you can stay with me. And then he throws in the but. But I don't but I've realized that I don't want to live without you. And it's the from if you look from through his eyes, that's really beautiful and really lovely. And from her eyes or from an outside of looking from her um on her side of it it's so manipulative yeah it gives her it's kind of it's a further level of entrapment that just keeps (laughs) entrapping her whether or not he's aware of it or not but the sense of if he had gone um if he structured the argument of going i all i know is that i don't want to be alone and i want to be with you so it's up to you whether you decide that you can go or you can stay that would be saying this is my argument for what i think should happen but it really ends up being your decision the other way, and that kind of gives her a sense of agency. The way he does it, though, is to go, these are your options, but this is the consequence about if you don't choose the right but option. But if you don't choose the right option, I, I don't want to live without you. Yeah, exactly. And so, in a way, it's... And what we know of her... And, like, I would, I was I was listening to one of the earlier episodes where there was a question that came up. There was a question that came up around, is he in love with her or is he in love with the idea of her? Yes. And I... And I actually think that's a question worth asking for her as well, because it is only basically the third time they've ever seen one another. Mm-hmm. And realistically, as much as yes, this is um, there, are, you know, this is a heightened version of reality in it being a narrative film. They're both such lost people, and these two lost people sit next to each other in a coffee shop and find each other. And so, what he's selling her is an idea. We're going to go to New Zealand. We're going to get- <laughs> actually got a laugh out loud in the audience that I was with because New Zealand might sound like it might have in 1905 sounded really exotic, but you know, it's the, you know, for the worst possible reason, it's like the number one news story. So people know a little bit more about New yeah. Zealand. And if you're an Australian, if you're watching this in Oz, you're like, I know New Zealand's like, yeah, it's and- like when they, when, when in the film goes, we're going to go to Australia and you're like, but why, 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 why where, where in Australia, where are you going? <laughs> 
Yeah, let's list. Give me a list of cities, and we're going to vet them because right now your question, your your decision making is flawed. Where are you going? Um, Where exactly are you going? But it's and so what he's he's selling her is the idea of a relationship, which I would almost argue my reading of their relationship was I always thought you're in love with the idea of her, you're not in love with her, and And she's she's in love with the idea of him. And not in love with him. And I think what's really good is that on the show, we've covered it. We've talked a lot about Neil's, you know, physical, um, you know, especially in the preceding minutes, we've talked about Neil's, you know, physical presence being, you know, really intimidating in those moments. And there's this kind of semi-Stockholm syndrome thing happening. And in this moment, you're so right. There is like the flavor of agency here. You want her to say it. But this is what you've got. The reality of the situation is exactly to your point, Dan. There's two really desperately lonely people. And, you know, she's way more candid about it than he is. You know, he is desperately lonely. And what's been masking that is this family. So when you strip away all those elements and this, he's, he's he, I mean, you can't be more, you couldn't be more metaphorically obvious. He's an empty room. Like he's, yeah. he's an empty room worth filling. He's on the water. Yeah. He's living in a parrot, you know, in a paradise that he's trying to find, you know, he's, and man like lays that in even more. Cause my memory of this scene, I was like, Oh, they're standing on a freeway looking over the LA cityscape. That was my memory of it. And I was like, Oh, like, you know, very Mulholland drive, very La La Land, very Nightcrawler. And then rewatching it before I was like, no, they're not. They're standing on a cliff overlooking the sea and the most significant intimate moment we've had with neil is him standing at his window looking into the sea in fact i was i started rewatching it before i looked i started watching it from the beginning and watched that scene i remember thinking what's the fuck what's with the sea what's the with this and but then it kind of not she's even more entrapped um whether man intends it or not she's even more entrapped to to go with him regardless of on top of the fact that he structures his arguments so in such a manipulative way by the fact that she is in a metaphorical sense so much in his space Mm. because only other moment i mean you don't think about when you think about la you don't think of the sea because the sea is so if the world of la that the film exists in it's so far away yes that the only other moment where we think where we hear that sound where we see that kind of landscape is in his private moment in his private space Ostensibly, this is an extension of his private space that he's brought her into. And now he's saying, either you can stay or you can go, but I kind of wish you would stay. Of course, she's going to turn around and say yes. And and he knows her. Like, for, for, for better or worse, we know that to say that thing... And I, you know what's, this is what's so great and conflicted and ambivalent about this character. And what's so wonderful about him in his construction for man is that we're rooting for him in this dumb scene. You know, like, let's be fair. It's, it's not a dumb scene. Sorry, I'm being, like, facetious there. But, like, we're rooting for him in this scene that is really conflicted because we actually mm. – we're hoping that he gets away. And so we're hoping that that line of, like, I don't want to do this anymore. And we know that it's coming from a sincere place, but it, it is actually the silver bullet. Like, it's the thing mm. that helps dismantle her armor. Even though she's in the foreground, she's larger than him, and she's had this face – God damn it, Amy Brenneman is good in this scene. God damn it, she's great in yeah. this movie. Um, you know, for, for we, we, I think we've talked floridly about Diane Venora being absolutely stunning as Justine. We've talked about Ashley Judd as Charlene Chahil. It's just knocking our freaking socks off so many times in this movie. Um, but let's floridly talk about Amy Brenneman in this scene. She just oh. has, has, has this armor. It's effortless. He's just throwing this stuff at her and it's just ping, 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 ping. And that thing that... That line of, like, I don't know if I want to do any of this without you. It's for a person who's been living alone in a city, toiling late at night, doing a shitty job that they haven't liked, found this fantasy person who feels like they tick all their boxes, is promising this fantasy relationship in a fantasy place to her because essentially New Zealand's a fantasy. You know, Dan Mm. talked about collateral. Like, these people are the physical manifestations of that postcard that Jamie Foxx's driver has for each other. Like, and the movie layers in all this stuff for these two to have it. So in this moment, that line, in this moment, he means it. And Mm. we're, and we're reading in the, we're layering in that. Fuck. That's so manipulative because we can watch her armor just completely shatter the second he says it. Particularly the way that that man frames that. Yes. That as much as, yes, our focus is on him because he's the one that's more in focus. He's the one that's speaking. He's the one, like, he's wearing, like, the white of his shirt picks up our, like, uh, like visually for us more so. But we can still see her. 
we can see the fact that at the beginning we can see she it's likely she's not going to go with this mm. and watch her slowly break down. I mean, it's one of the most from memory it's one of the most composed shots in the film. It's more there's more of a aesthetic control in it than in most of the rest of the film. Most of the, rest of the film it kind of has an immediacy and there's a kind you know as much as he he has complete control of everything in the frame it feels like the camera is capturing things as they happen and it's not as controlled. This is a moment of complete visual control where you're reading the text into everything, everything that you can see. Yeah. I think um, you're, I think you're, you've nailed it there because just on that preceding scene and you, you know, you're not being as familiar with hate. I'll, I'll sort of say it. And for folks who aren't as familiar, the, the original scene where De Niro goes to his, you know, on the water, assuming in Malibu home, that's you know, out in the ocean. And he does that sort of very, tactical lean against the wall before we get that up close and personal of his face that is a is a direct homage to a painting um and Mm. i can't remember the painting's name but the artist is alex colville um and the painting is literally exactly that person leaning against the window with with a gun in the background and on a draftsman's table like it's got Mm. like some not uh knots in it for measurements and so I wonder just now, as you were talking, I was just thinking, God, he's so right about the composition, so right, like almost then, and, and particularly what I was thinking the whole time is, and I actually wrote it down, was like, does this scene actually have an artistic influence? Is there a piece of art, especially the mm. composition of the nape of her neck, you know? Mm. And she she is the predominant thing happening in this frame, her 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 everything's drawn to the way that her face is composed mm. and it's beautifully sort of white and shaded and and the the background echo the, of the street light is just helping to sort of balance um, uh, the lightness of her fa- facial features and she's got great features you know prominent brow big lips and she's just there the nape of her neck you can read the emotions going through her throat as she's breathing mm. it's just such a great scene but i just wonder yeah if it's got an artistic influence too and just thinking now i, I hadn't really thought about this until now but most of the moments of controlled composition in the film tend to be about neil while vincent is often like the first time you see vincent and vincent in his house with justine it's you know them in bed and then getting up and having breakfast and all that kind of stuff it's a lot of quick cutting it's a lot of close-ups it's it's very kind of immediate and filmic while a lot of the more beautiful shots in the film tend to lean towards Neil's narrative, which is interesting in the fact that Neil is so is such so obsessed with a fantasy that doesn't exist. Yeah, I think you you as a theatre director, and this is what I'll talk yeah, to you about. This is totally a theatre director no, thing. Definitely. No, but I was just going to say to you is, you know, I think um, an amazing insight that I received in the 100th episode, and I'm sorry I have to do this now because this is this show, folks, that has done this to me. Um, Dante Spinotti, who's a cinematographer, um, was on the 100th episode of One Heat Minute. And in that, he told me like explicitly, and I think I'd heard it roundabout or rumored or talked about in his method, but he sort of flat out confirmed it is Michael Mann has a very, is very aware of the emotional trajectory that he wants to be conveying in every scene of the movie. And so I think that when you look at that, and I'm talking now to a direct, you know, a theater director, if you're looking, if you know the emotional trajectory, you also know the character trajectory. And and you've got to think that Neil McCauley, much more still character, so leans into the power of De Niro, right? He's like all the mm. scenes that are composed and the stillness and really letting him shine in those things. Are, you know, And it even starts from his reaction shot to Wayne, Wayne Grove's escape where he's just looking down and there's just this you know, random train line streetlights in the distance, a weird ominous tree, you know, back in his apartment, this scene. You know, off with Edie. But Pacino has the frenetic pace because that's what Vincent yep. is. Like, he's he's that energy. Bang, sharp, on the edge, where i got to be. Like, that that builds into the mythical nature of that character. So, like, when... And again, also, when they, when they collide, that's where Vincent can be still because, you know, yep. he's performing something for everyone else in case, in case you didn't wonder. Like, he's performing... <laughs> Uh, what 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 Vincent Hanna is like Vincent you know when he's big and blustery and crazy look at all those scenes they're all the scenes where he's interrogating people they're all the scenes where he's intimidating yep. people they're all the scenes where he's trying to get information and then when he's with his crew he's extremely matter of fact to the point of like you know he checks if Not someone's even saying anything yeah he oh, doesn't say anything or he points or he's like mm. how you doing he's that, like that I'll, moment how that, you doing I'll live and he goes okay hangs the phone off. <laughs> That moment in the at the crime scene in the beginning of the film where he's when he arrives and just 
points at things is just, it's so delicious. It's the most <laughs> delicious delivery of what kind of character this is. Oh. In the same sense that Neil just has to be still, he doesn't have to say anything, but it's the degree to which Vincent just has the power to just be like, I'm going to point at this object and you're going to tell me exactly what I want to know about that object in the exact context that I need it. It's, ah. Oh. And, and it's, it's one of my favorite moments in the whole film. It's, it is. It's so great. And it's so great because he gathers all that disparate information. He looks, he, he, he essays, you know, essays the scene. He's like, hmm, yep, 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 yep. Does his little appraisal. And then he tells them the narrative that he's picked up from what everything they've told him. Like he, he's, he tells the interconnecting narrative. No, find that in the phone book. We've got to get lucky here. Find out if this guy heard anything, da-da-da-da-da, because... And he's like, because the, these guys are going to mystify us, essentially. Yeah. Like, and so he's doing everything that the stillness sometimes can't convey. They use Pacino's natural flair and that energy to be like, oh, he's the guy who can do all the exposition because it's going to be more fun to listen to. Another thing that struck me about in thinking about this particular minute um, is the fact there was there is I will admit there is one element of heat that I'm still grappling my head around how I feel about um, and. That's Elliot Goldenthal's score. Okay. Um, which I'm, because I'm a massive film score fanatic, like obsessively. Like there are some films where I mostly will go and see it because I can't wait to hear what the score is. Um, <laughs> What's your I, favorite I, score I, of this year so far? Favorite score of the last six months? Oh, God, that is a hard question. Um, I reckon it might be. It might be Suspiria. Suspiria. That's a good one. Yeah, maybe. I'd yeah. have to really think about it. Suspiria is good. I, I, Bill Street, actually. Bill Street would be the other I was just going to say, Nick Patel's Bill Street score is out of control. How, how it did not win the Oscar. Let's just move on. Hey, hey, hey. That, hey, Dan, let's just, let's just remind everyone. I still can't get over first man not getting nominated. That not, just, that not, just, in 1996, Heat, which has Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Michael Mann directing, Art Linson producing... Has casting by Bonnie Timmerman, cinematography by Dante Spinotti, has Dove Honig and Pascal Buber as the principal editors, and, and, and there are other editors on the film, but those two guys were the, the main two. Did not get a single nomination. No technical, no sound editing, no editing, no score, nothing. Nada. Not a nomination so not- for acting. It's a 70 speaking role movie. So it's 1995's Zodiac then. The 100%, film is better than most and no one... Because what was 90... What else is 95? 95, is that the Pulp that's Fiction? The Braveheart. No, that's no, the Braveheart, yeah. Oh, that makes it even worse. <laughs> I mean, Braveheart is not a bad film, but it's not quite to the level of this. Um, but the one thing that I noticed with this particular moment is that the score is absent. And yeah. one of the things I, I find problematic about Golden Thor's score, score is, I, you know, I don't... I don't have a problem with a score that's not leading you to how you're supposed to feel about it. I often find that's a lot more useful. Mm. But I always there were times where I would go, particularly I remember with the heist at the beginning, that I go, I don't know why this is here. There's a lot of moments in Heat with music where I go, I feel like this music is here because it feels like it has to be here, not because it needs to be here. And oftentimes that threatens to rob it of moments of real potency. The beauty of this, on top of the fact that man slows down, lets it sit makes our point of focus really clear, gives us a very composed shot to look to take in. He also removes sound. All we hear is the sound of birds, the sound of the sea, the sound of traffic, allowing us to re- – like the, it's almost like the, the film is holding its breath for a moment. Yes. It's had its – Mo- it's had its mo- its burst with the Ralph scene. It's about to have a massive sharp intake of breath in the next scene with Chris in the car um, with Ashley Judd at the balcony. But it's, it's almost as the um, it's almost as if the film is just having a moment of just going, what like it's this is from this point. This is the cr- like this is the proper crisis point where we're never where whatever decision she makes at this point. The film is going towards an inevitable end, and we can't stop it. And the ho- and it's we're waiting to see what is going to happen. Because it takes a whole different tone. Like if you just think of what the consequences are, if she says no, then we a hundred percent know he's going for Wayne Grow and he's going to be aggressive. And there are no, there's no stakes for him to go to Wayne Grow. So that this scene is so essential in the emotional makeup, especially because of what it leads us to. It actually gives us something to care about. You know, we're not, 
we're not Neil walking through that hotel. We're Edie in the car. Going, is yeah. he going to fucking get out alive? Like we are literally mm. her in the car waiting for that to happen. And it and it makes the moment because you because there is the part of you that man like man constructs the film in a way that you go. You know that Neil has done something wrong. You know that he's not a good person, but you do kind of want to get him, see him get away. And you know that he's manipulating this woman, but there might be a possibility that this fantasy might work. And then there's the moment in the car. Like, I'm jumping minutes, so I'm sorry to whoever gets to this minute later. But it's the moment where John Voight's character calls him and says, I know you wanted to know this. Make do with this information what you will. But this is where he is. And art, the, th- the thing that stuck in my head after that is... After he has that phone call, he starts to smile. And you think the smile is going – and it look, you can see the build. You can see he's building towards a decision, a realization of catharsis and clarity where he knows I know exactly what I'm going to do and it's all going to be fine and it's all going to work. And you go, great. He's decided he's not going to go after Wangro. They're going to get to the airport. They're going to fly away. And just as that smile reaches its zenith, he turns the car around and goes after Wangro. And you just go, no, that that because of the potency of this moment, that moment becomes so much more devastating and it's so clear they're not going to get out of this. And also the fantasy doesn't matter to him. Like the fantasy doesn't he's built this idea of saying, I'm going to go away with you. We're going to live together. We're going to be safe. It's going to be fine, but he can't let go of the thing that holds him to the ground, which is, you know, his sociopathy, the fact that he is born and bred to have this life. And at the last second when he could just get away, he doesn't. And that moment is bought by this moment, by this moment of going, there's a, a possibility we've seen him being vulnerable and that vulnerability seems so real and it's full of so much potential that the film may get he may get away with this but then when he when he makes the decision to not it becomes all the more devastating i know that's probably weight reading way too much into Bobbert De Niro probably having a fart or something like that. <laughs> we are 134 minutes into a podcast where we've examined every single minute at this point. That is absolutely not too much. And I think that is the perfect moment for us to exit because the lovely Eloise Ross, the incredible Matt Zolazites, and the awesome Carly Severn have got minutes 146, 47, and 48 that encompass that exact little arc. So you are Don't leading... Tell, tell them not to listen to this. <laughs> Don't listen to the new guy with his YouTube opinions. <laughs> no, I think it feeds perfectly because you're right. I think that what is what is getting exponentially more satisfying about this podcast for me as a participant as much as the host um, is talking about these moments and being really able to contextualize them in the picture of the film to say you know when we're scrutinizing them the reason they live and die is so because of how they've what cards we've been dealt before like how scenes are going to be paid off and then also how much the tra- there's this tragic air that's hovering around this this whole corridor of this movie right now. Um, it's just how much it's laying in these foundations that you know are just going to be exploded and be kicked out from under us. So, and this really is the point in the film where it stops being about the mechanisms of the narrative and starts becoming properly about the the completion of the character arcs. It's about from here onwards. Yes, the story is still incredibly fascinating and beautifully plotted and beautifully structured, but from this point it. The, all of the heists, all of the all of the all of the technical cleverness doesn't matter because it's been the it's earning its right to have this incredibly complex, ambiguous, beautiful, emotional ending. Like this is the point I think where it really cements the earning of that at the end. Well, we're gonna earn this, <laughs> Daniel Lemon. Thank you so much for being a part of One Hit Minute. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've had a blast. See, look, guys, if um, if you uh, want to follow uh, Dan, the best place is it literally is at Daniel Lemon on Twitter. D A N I E L L A M I N. Dan, is there anywhere else they want to find you? They can seek you out other than MakeTheSwitch.com.au. No, they're the two best places. Um, yeah, check us out on the website for all of our reviews. I've got heaps of reviews coming up this week, so you'll probably find most of the most of them at the moment are me. But yeah, and Twitter's the other best I'll, place I'll, to hear my ramblings. I will link both 
Dan's Twitter and also um, a link to his author page on Make Switch so you guys can check out any of his stuff. This has been an absolute pleasure and to talk to someone for nearly an hour who just saw Heat like a few days ago is so why I love this show. Guys, thank you so much for listening and being a part of it. Um, it is the 134th minute, as I said, and we have so many more episodes and great guests um, to chat with you um, along the way. But I've been Blake Howard, your host. Thank you, Garth Franklin, for our web design. Mr. Paul Davies for our theme, and we'll catch you on another episode of One Eight Minute just around the corner, and hopefully not cutting off the middle of a beautiful arc of a scene for you guys again. <laughs> uh, if, if it's your first episode listening, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you around soon. <laughs>